Good morning. Good morning, Rabotai. By the time we finishing, by the time we finish reading the sponsorships today, it's going to be a good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rabotai. Welcome to lunch in the class. Breakfast in the class dedicated in loving memory of Lulim Mishpatem, Rivka Bad Ruven, Vester Ambalu, Allah Shalom for Shaloshim, and Tzvi David Ben Shalomovelea, sponsored by their son Ben Sion Elias. Uh, it should be Bezat Hashem for a Ilui Nishama. As well, dedicated in loving memory of Fatima Kornova, Ilui Nishmat Panir Bat Sivia, sponsored by her grandson Nathaniel Abraham, Hazaku Baruch, Aris Inshallah. Uh, breakfast in the class dedicated in loving memory of Ms. Lily Safar, her philanthropies reached so many throughout the world, and sponsored by Yossi Levi as a Seudat Oda'ah. Uh, also dedicated in loving memory of Lili Nishmat Chuta Bat Esther, sponsored by Tamar Megidish. <clears throat> and breakfast in the class is sponsored by Yitzchak Ben Simchai Yohan Medalsi as a Seudat Oda'ah. I love these Seudat Oda'ah, beautiful. Also, breakfast in the class is sponsored by the Flu Crew, dedicated in celebration of the engagement of Rachel Krakowski and Sam Suruya. Hazaku Baruch. Fantastic. Also, my friends, uh, sponsored by the flu crew, who's on fire today. Uh, as apparently we've been hearing on the news, the flu is spreading everywhere. I didn't realize it was the crew, uh, not the disease. Sponsored by the flu crew, dedicated in celebration of the wedding of Grace Galapo and Elliot Shubin. Simantov, Mazatov, Mabruk. And finally, breakfast in the class and uh, the week of COVID was sponsored by David E. Ash. In honor of you and your substantial capacity to do good today and every day. And uh, also a new website where you, uh, the viewer and listener, can support <coughs> chazak.org by purchasing a t-shirt or hoodie. Honoring your capacity to do good today and every day. www.capacityforgood.com Hazaku um, Baruch. My, my friends, I'm uh, going to make a shechianu on that joke. Because we've not heard it before <laughs> since yesterday. Okay. The, the, the uh, Chachamim tell us something remarkable. The Chachamim tell us <clears throat> that there is a confluence, a connection between the Pirasha of Miketz and the holiday of Chanukah. And in this holiday, the holiday of Miketz, the, the Pirasha of Miketz, there are signs and intimations and connections to the story of Hanukkah. But I think that there's something else also over here. The special mizmor that we said today, uh, in, our, in our synagogue we say it after the Shir Shalyom, other places say it by the Sefer Torah, other places say it after Alel Shabbat. But there's a mizmor, mizmor Shir Hanukkah Tabayit Le David. It mentions the word Chanukat Habayit Le David. What does Chanukat Tabayit mean? It means a dedication of the home. Okay? Uh, hopefully, uh, dedication of the temple in, the, in, the, in that co- context. But we read over there something really interesting. And what do we talk about? Hashem, you brought me to life from those who descended into a pit. Of course, the story of Miketz is the story of Yosef's ascension from the pit. The story of Chanukah talks about the uh, bringing of light to a time of darkness. And the story of Yosef is being pulled up from a place of darkness. But my friends, I think there's something else here as well. Our Chachamim tell us that the time of Yavan, the Galut of Yavan is symbolized by a very specific element. 
In fact, the Midrash tells us that the, uh, the beginning of Bereshit already tells us about the story of Galut. And it describes this idea, al and a darkness on the face of the deep. What is Galut Yavan? Galut Yavan is Choshech. What is the story of Edom, the Galut that we're in now? The Galut that we're in now is Tehom. It's this never-ending deep, because we don't see, there's no, it seems as if there's no end to the Galut of Galut Edom, which is over 2,000 years. My friends, <clears throat> however, where we are, we're looking at the story of Yavan, and the Midrash explains it, it considers it, the story of Choshech, the story of darkness. And why is it considered, why is Yavan considered the story of darkness? And I, I think that this is very, very powerful. <clears throat> the Gemara continues and explains that why is it Choshech, why is the Galut of Yavan, the Greek influence and uh, <clears throat> Galut, Symb- symbolic and symbolized by darkness. <coughs> because they darkened the eyes of the Jews with their gezerot, with their decrees. What decrees did the Greeks have? They decreed that they were not allowed to study Torah. They decreed, they had a decree against the keeping of Rosh Chodesh. They had a decree against Brit Milah. So they took specific mitzvot and they said you're not allowed to do that if you want to shake lulav for the Greeks no problem go crazy shake away you want to do uh, what's it called you want to do a Chanukat Abayit you want to do uh, what, uh, do a bar mitzvah fadal whatever mitzvah you want to do you want to keep a Pesach fantastic have your matzah they chose specific mitzvot and they took those mitzvot out. Now, I want to explain, because I think there's something that's very, uh, pardon the pun, Galut Edom, deep here. And that is, that it sounds so tenuous, this connection, with the Gemara Gemara just made. Why is it called the Galut of darkness? Because they darkened the eyes of the Jews with their Gezerot. So now, let's say as an example, instead of the word darkness, it said, uh, face. So, al penete home. So we could have said, it's going to be the galut of the face. Because they smacked the face of the Jewish people with their gezerot. Let's say it would have said, uh, what's it called? Tears in the Pasuk. It caused the Jewish people to cry because of their gezerot. It's just an adjective that you're choosing to use to describe the gezerot that they did. It must be that there's something more essential about darkness that is symbolized by these, uh, by these specific mitzvot that the Jewish people did not allow them to do. So let's take a look one more time at these mitzvot. At Rosh Chodesh, at Brit Milah, and as well at the study of Torah. What about those things brought Choshech? And not only that, I want to ask one last point. You know, wisdom in... Uh, uh, in, in popular culture, in the Torah, is always described and defined by a connection with light. Kiner mitzvah ve Torah or, Torah as an example is compared to light, to, to a flame. 
we find this idea that wisdom is considered to be, it brings light, the light of reason. A time where there was no light or understanding, people were illiterate. What do we call that period of time? They were called the Dark Ages. So both in the world, in the Torah literature, wisdom is always called light. You can't find a lost object. You don't know where it is. Now you know where it is. How do we describe it? Your eyes were lit up. My friends, why would we call, of all the Galuyot, why would we call Choshech to Yavan? Where Yavan, we know, brought a tremendous amount of knowledge, a tremendous amount of wisdom into the world. And I think that there's something here which is very, very powerful. You see, there are two ways that a person can be rendered unable to see. One is when a person lives in a time or in a space or in a situation in their life where they are surrounded by complete darkness. But there's also something else which causes a person to be unable to see. And that is a situation of extreme light. If you've ever been driving and the sun is dead on in front of you, right as you come over a hill or something, or you make a turn and all of a sudden you turn and you can't see a thing. And you scramble to get the thing down. You're holding up your hand like this. You're really driving blind. A person can be blinded by darkness or they can be blinded by light. Yavan brought a tremendous amount of wisdom into the world. But it was not wisdom <clears throat> that caused people to be able to see. It was wisdom that caused people to be unable to see. <coughs> My friends, I want to explain this concept. And I think that all of us have experienced this idea in some way, shape, or form. I'll give you another example, just so it's clear. It's not just the idea of uh, sunlight. If you've ever been driving in your car in intense fog, and you can't see anything, the natural reaction when you hit that fog is to turn on your lights. But what you'll know is the second you turn your lights on, actually every bit of fog, every particle of water refracts that light. And actually that the turning of the lights to the brighter you turn your lights, the less you can see. Why is that? Why, what's the reasoning for that? The reason is because the light can't fall on what it's supposed to fall. So instead what happens? the light bounces back and the person is unable to see that which they're trying to see. My friends, listen carefully to that idea. That means that it brings a tremendous amount of light, the fog does, to something which is directly in front of you. But it does not let you see something which is further down the road, which is a ways ahead. It gives you perhaps a tremendous light for short term. But what does it do for your long term? It destroys it. A person might be rendered unable to make a commitment uh, in Shiduchim because they have no one to date. But you know what else freezes, paralyzes young people? The fact that there's too many people to date. And it's the great irony of New York City that there are so many girls and so many guys that you can't find anybody. It's wild. This is a wild concept, my friends. 
But what we need to focus on and understand is that ultimately, what you need, so to speak, in a shiduch, in a life decision, is not to have a million options, but to be able to focus on one. And that the one that you're focusing on, the area of focus that a person is condensing their field of vision toward, should be something which does not only serve a current or short-term need, but is something that services something also down the road. You have lots of people who make decisions in business because they're looking at the short term. But unfortunately, they haven't actually played this out. They look at their, at this uh, new business opportunity and they're getting a higher salary. Fantastic, great idea. I'm making $50,000 more. They jump ship, they change jobs. Only after they change jobs they realize that in their new job, they don't have health insurance. Price of the health insurance for the family, $40,000. Okay, whatever it is. Price of traveling, commuting to the city, to your fancy job that's paying you more, in gas, in tolls every day, in parking. By the time the guy actually runs all the numbers, after he got over the shine of this bonus that he was getting, you know what happens? He's paying money to get this raise. People don't think this way. You have a rabbi. A rabbi, as an example, as a member of clergy, he's able to get parsonage. That means that the rent that's paid for him, certain things, are relatively tax-free because he's a member of clergy. Okay? So the rent for that person is tax-free. Anything which is associated with the job that the person is doing, potentially, okay, could be rendered tax-free. Imagine a rabbi thinking to himself back, leaning back in his chair one day thinking, this life is not for me. Everyone around me is so much more comfortable. This is, br- this is crazy. I'm struggling you know, with my, uh, with my salary. I can barely make it month to month. I'm going to go into the world of business. I have rabbi friends that did that. And I'll tell you the truth. You know what? Many of them, they're still struggling. Because their parsonage disappeared and they're no longer working for clergy. Now they have to pay tax on, their, on the money that they're paying for rent. Right? Or their mortgage, whatever it might be. Not only that, the schools that were offering a discount for clergy are now charging them full price. The hump that they needed to get over of what it cost to shift into that world is not something that they considered. And what did they lose? Even if they broke even, what did they lose? Now you're spending your whole day at work when before you were spending your whole day trying to help people. So for the same price, is this what you'd rather be doing working in that cubicle? Is that what you'd rather? But oftentimes, literally, we're blinded by the light of something, some option, some choice, which jumps in front of us and goes, hey, look at me, look at me. That is the power, my friends, of Yavan. But my friends, I want to illustrate this idea, this choshech of Yavan. What did Yavan do? They forbid three things. And let's take a look for a second at what these three things represent. Obviously, there's other things as well. But I want to talk about these these three that were part of the problem, I believe, that caused an issue for the Jewish people. The first issue is Rosh Chodesh. Now to me, that doesn't sound like such a biggie. Tefillin, you know, I understand. It's a sign between you and Hashem. It's one of the signs of being the Jewish people. Right? Shabbat, I can understand, right? Learning Torah. How are they going to be Jews if they don't know how to learn Torah? Okay? But Rosh Chodesh, really, that's the one you went for? 
What do you think? What's, what is it about Rosh Chodesh? Our rabbis tell us something unbelievable. They say that the nature of Rosh Chodesh carries within it the power of renewal. You see, the nations of the world, their calendar is run by a solar system. That means that every single day is exactly the same. The fact that something is continually the same brings a sense of monotony that allows a person to just slip into some recurring uh, day. Day after day, day after day, it's all the same. There aren't any special days. There aren't any holidays with different dates, with different meanings. It's all the same. There aren't different months with different energies. So a person is stuck doing the same thing every day. Now, no matter how good, you go to the best restaurant in the world and you order the best thing on their menu. If I sent you to, I don't reserve cut, and I ordered for you every single day, the $260 steak that they have, full blood Wagyu, I don't know whatever it is, you know, delicious. If I ordered it for you every single day, it'll be coming out of your nose. You wouldn't, be able, you wouldn't take it for free after a certain time. You wouldn't even be able to look at meat anymore. Exactly like what happened with the Jewish people. They're complaining for meat. And what does God say? You want this extra beautiful, delicious thing called meat? No problem. Here's a slab. You're going to eat it day after day, day after day, day after day until it's coming out of your nose. How long does God give it to them until it comes out of their nose? Anyone remember? Chodesh Yamim, God says. I'm going to give it to you for 30 days. What's the significance of Chodesh Yamim? God said, I'm going to give it to you until it no longer tastes chadash, until it's no longer new. What the Greeks understood was, the Jewish people have this incredible power about them. Their engagement in Torah and mitzvot lifts them above the mundane practices of the world. And so long as the Jewish people have that as part of their identity, they'll be successful no matter where they go. So the Greeks said to themselves, how do we snuff out the light of the Jewish people? You know what the answer is? Let them have almost everything that they do. Let them have it. But remove the element of newness to it. Remove the excitement from it. The minute we do that, even the best things, the most wonderful practices, they can become, as our rabbis say, mitzvat anashim melumada. It can become... The, the, the mitzvah, the things that a person does that become learned behaviors. You could take the most beautiful thing in the world and get so used to it that actually it means nothing anymore. You know, some rabbis that preside over incredibly huge congregations and they're called on to do five weddings a day. You know, they have to run from this wedding to this wedding to this wedding to this wedding. Eventually there comes a point where the rabbi was officiating the wedding has zero interest in the wedding. And, and it's, not, it's not their fault. It's just part of the human condition. And you know what gets him excited, by the way? You know what wedding he's going to get excited at if he does three weddings a day? That rabbi? The wedding where the guy almost died and the girl was a yatom, her parents passed away and she got saved as a miracle. Because it's a unique story. The only ones that float your boat is when it's something out of the ordinary. Because it's very difficult to stay excited about something that is just repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. My friends, when we look at these things that the Greeks took away, I think that that mandates 
an avodah, or a sense of work that we need to focus on on Chanukah. Because if we were once at war with the Greek methodology, with the Greek ideology, then we are at war with the Greek ideology today as well. And if it's Chanukah and we're celebrating that victory, then we have to ask ourselves, do we want to be bystanders or do we want to be on the field? Do we want to be people that are watching the game or do we want to be people that are in the game? We want to be part of that. So the question is, to ask yourself on this day of Chanukah is, how do I look at my mitzvah, the thing that I do every day, and how do I make it feel like I never did it before in my whole life? Try doing that to your shacharit. It's hard. It's very hard. So what makes you zone in? What makes you tune in in a way that you've not tuned in before? You're saying the same words, and you know when you're going to say them again? At Mencha. You know when you're going to say them again? At Arbit. And you know when you're going to say them again? The next day, three times again. How do you get excited about that? And for most people, that's why their prayer becomes robotic. Our rabbis tell us that a person should not have a tefillah. She'eno mechadesh bodavar. That he did not bring something new to that prayer. So the first goal, if you will, I would say, of, uh, what's it called, of Chanukah, is to bring a sense of newness to the things we do every day. In my house last night, we were lighting the Chanukah candles. And there's a tradition that every night of Chanukah, there's a different thought that a person can have in terms of bringing light to the world. And the, one of the ideas of lighting one candle is that there's a candle that stands by itself. And you pray on that night, that there should be light and there should be uh, um, simcha and there should be joy and there should be understanding for people who stand as one, who don't have somebody with them. On the second night, perhaps as a prayer, as <coughs> the tradition goes, to pray for couples, for two people together, for shalom bayit between two. For three, the, the concept might be to pray for families. That there's a con- and each night there's another idea to be able to pray. So last night we sat at the table at the Chanukiah, <clears throat> and I said to my children, we say in the Berachah, that God did miracles for our forefathers, but He also did He did it now. So I said to my children, let's think of every single person that we know that is, uh, is waiting for their nasib, is trying to find someone that they're going to get married to, and let's think that the Hashem should send them life uh, you know, for, that, for that person. And we went through, me, my children, my son, my daughter, my wife, we, th- we thought of every name that we could think of that we know, from our Bekneset, from our family, from our friends, that we want to say, and we pray to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that Hashem should light up their lives uh, with, the, with, the, with the greatest Beracha, with the beracha, this Beracha of, uh, uh, of, of a Nasib, Inshallah, Be'ezrat Hashem, everyone should find their Nasib. But it brought a sense of emotion to, to the lighting of the candles, because you're, you're stating something that's not part of your everyday routine. And as well, it's not the same old Chanukiah. It's something new. There's something different here. My friends, I ask always people to think about this, to bring something new to their Chanukah. There's a war going on out there. What are we doing to win it? The, the hearts and minds of our children are being taken by other ideologies. What are we doing to fight back? What are we doing to, to push back? Uh, I saw a video yesterday of Joe Carey, a member from the community, uh, and uh, the president of my dad's synagogue in, in, uh, in Hathaway, when he visited the Lubavitcher Rebbe maybe 30 years ago. And he, he wishes him a happy birthday, and he says, Rabbi, what can I do? What can I do for the community? 
And the Rebbe told him, he said, make a learning program, an educational program for young people. This was such an important thing to be able to bring to the table, to recognize that if we're not investing in the education of our children, then the light of Torah, it will disappear. Because you know what happens to the light of a menorah in the daylight? You can't see it. And when there's so much knowledge and information out there and other things that present themselves as light, you know what happens to the little light of the Chanukiah? You can't find it. And that's why we actually light at night. And my friends, that I think was God's intention in bringing us not just the miracle of Chanukah, the redemption of Chanukah, but also the darkness of the time of Yavan. They needed to take something from us to create a sense, a, sa- a sensation of darkness so that we could yearn for the light in a way that we've been taking it for granted up until that point. The darkness of the time of Yavan was that they presented so much knowledge and information that we, we started to think that maybe, you know what, we didn't need the light of the Torah. The world is a place of where lots of people do lots of nice things. Do I really need the Torah to be a good person? That was the darkness of Yavan. So they took away Rosh Chodesh by making our Torah feel used, feel boring, feel like something that wasn't new. And then they brought so many different new things, new ideas, new concepts to to take your attention away. My friends, the second uh, second object that we have, and we'll go through it very quickly, is, uh, is Brit Milah. Brit Milah is when a Jewish person understands, I think, something very powerful, and that is that there are a lot of things that feel good in this world. There are a lot of desires in this world. But for a Jew to be a Jew, they need to be able to say, I don't do whatever feels good. The place of the Brit Milah is the height of passion within a, a, a man. It says that in the seat of passion, in a place of a person's manhood, they're going to reduce a, a tiny fraction of that enjoyment, if you will, a tiny fraction of that pleasure, and say to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I give you, you know what, I'm willing to be a little bit less, have a little less pleasure in this world. I'm going to give up that non-kosher steak. I'm going to give up that non-kosher wine. I'm going to give up working on Shabbat. You know what, I have more money if I work on Shabbat. At least that's what you think. never works out that way. God blesses you when you work six days instead of seven, right? But a person thinks for that pleasure it's worth giving, but ultimately... It is the sacrifices that we make, uh, the elements of a little less pleasure. When you can't go to that vacation spot because there's no minyan. You can't go to that vacation spot because there's no kosher food. You know, when you decide that this girl, you know what, she's beautiful, she's magnificent, but she's not Jewish, or she's not on my level. I keep Shabbat, I keep kosher, I keep this. She's great, she's gorgeous, she makes me laugh, she has wonderful things, I have a lot of pleasure from this person. But you know what? I'm seeing only what's right in front of me. And people forget that. What's going to happen when that first Shabbat comes and you come home from shul and you think you're just going to grow together and you walk in and the TV's on. She's watching some program. Uh, I don't know, whatever is on, uh, on that day. Or you walk in, you're ready to make kiddush and the music's blaring in the house. And she says, oh, are you really coming home from shul now? I want to go shop. Shabbat. You don't realize it until the person's living together. Until they're in the same house. And even if, even if you did, you did realize that. But then comes a time, you're like, okay, you know what, it's her. I'm me, she's her, I'll continue doing my thing. She'll do her thing. And then the kids come. 
How are the kids going to be raised? And she starts telling you, what, you want them to go to shul with you every day? You're going to turn them into boring old people like you? I want to go out. I want to go visit my parents and wherever. They, they, they live 30 miles away from, I'm not walking 30 miles. Okay, you know what? You go to shul. It's gonna, I'm going to take me and the kids. and We're going to go. You don't realize these things when you think short term and you get blinded by the light that's close and you don't see, uh, uh, you don't see the distance. So the second thing was, they, they tried to take away from the Jewish person this idea that pleasure doesn't conquer all. And for a Jew, morality, ethics, connection with God is the number one thing in our lives. And finally, the last thing, my friends, that they took away from the Jewish people was the study of Torah. I, I think that this is a very important point, and I'll end with this. Because you know, there are many things that a, person, uh, that a person can live without. There are many things that a person, even if they don't do them, they still have a chance of connecting with their heritage, with their source. There's many mitzvot. I do all these, but not this one. You know, 612 is not bad. But if a person is not studying, if they're not growing in Judaism, if you're not learning more, you're learning less. If you're not taking on more, you're taking on. people think that they can maintain the status quo, but ultimately, it never works that way. If you're not learning more, you're forgetting what you learned. If you're not taking on more, you're losing what you've taken on. And the person who decides, I'm gonna, de- I'm gonna keep my life exact, I found this level, I'm perfectly happy right here. Well, if you're perfectly happy right here, you know what you need to do? You need to aim here, and here, and here. You know why? Because then as time goes on, you may get back to here. I always think about this idea, when a person is a sharpshooter, so one of the things that they do, you think it's very easy. Why? You look through the scope, you find the thing, the target, you line it up to the, to the, you know, to the crosshairs, no problem. And if I shoot the bullet, it's going to get right there. Of course, no problem. But my friends, that's not how it works. The first thing the sharpshooter has to do, before he even looks down that scope, lick his finger and hold it up to feel which way the wind is blowing and how fast it's blowing. You have a wind blowing west. If you're not aiming the gun degrees to the right, towards east, if you're lining it up directly on, you you know exactly what you want. You have it lined up completely. The shot is perfect. And you know what? The gun is powerful and the bullet will travel 2,000 miles an hour. Brilliant. You're not hitting nothing. Because over the distance that it takes, slowly but surely, It gets dragged to the left. It gets dragged to the west. And your shot winds up nowhere near its target. My friends, even if you figured out where you want to end up, you still have to aim to the right. You still have to try harder, try higher. Because ultimately the winds that blow through our country, our society, they're pulling us further and further down. And if you want to end up where you're hoping to end up, it's important to be able to have the study of Torah, the idea of more. May Hashem bless us always to have these three things in our life, the element of newness, the element of sacrifice, and the element of more understanding uh, that when we want to get to our targets, we always have to shoot and aim forever higher. Baruch Amen